The Story of the Haunted House Among the woods and twisting paths that curl around the rock of the Acropolis, just below the dark places where the young go to do the things they want to do in the dark, are the homes of the wealthy, gleaming in washed stone and bright red tile, well-kept flowering vines trailing gracefully across their walls and porticos. But among them stood a house that was quite different. It was big, a rich man's mansion to be sure, but the walls and the roof were crumbling. The vines had almost overtaken the house, their long fingers creeping into the windows and the doorways. The crumbling mud bricks showed signs of unrepaired wear around the edges and holes where burglars had tried their luck, optimistically hoping there might be something of value inside. The stones of the foundations were full of lichen in every crack, and some of the roof tiles had fallen in. The wood of the door was damp and flaked away in your fingers, and no light shone from anywhere in the house or its grounds. It was an aberration, a hole where a handsome home should have been, a gaping chasm draining the life from the elegant villas surrounding it. The house was in a prime location, not far from where the Roman Agora is now, with a stunning view across the city towards the Lycovitos Hill. It was advertised for sale or rent, but for a price more suited to a stall at the flea market than a vast, empty house. A small stall at that. Athenodorus, the Stoic, had recently arrived in Athens and was looking for somewhere to rent. The owner had been hoping for a fool who would take it at the price and ask no questions, but Athenodorus was no fool. He went straight to the nearby fountain and asked the women there to tell him about the house. Several would only shake their heads and walk away, but a few of the younger ones were willing to stay and talk to him. "'No one has stayed even one night there in years,' said one, "'but my husband told me a lot of people tried to rent it, about ten years ago or more.' "'A lot of people?' asked Athenodorus. "'You mean it was a big household, or two households living together?' "'No, I mean a lot of people, one after the other,' she replied." People would come, rent the house, move in, and then within a month or two, they would die there. Then someone else would come and rent it, and the whole thing would start again, until no one was willing to so much as set foot in the place anymore. They died, said Athenodorus. What did they die of? No one knows, said the first girl, but at that another took over the story. They wasted away, she said. Every morning they would come out of the house with eyes bulging, barely able to move because they'd had no sleep. Night after night it would get worse and worse until they no longer had the energy to eat or drink. And even in bright sunlight, they would look at things that weren't there and jump at noises no one else could hear, as if whatever they saw and heard at night was so terrible that it had imprinted itself on their eyes and ears so they saw and heard it even when it wasn't there. It was fear, said the first woman. They died of fear, constant, never-ending fear. In this world, there are many more things that frighten us than those that can really crush us, you know, said Athenodorus. And we often suffer far more in our imaginations than in reality. But what was it? What had frightened them so much? They wouldn't really talk about it, said the woman. But we live next door, and sometimes, in the darkest part of the night, we hear weird clanking noises, like iron clashing against something. Once, leaning out the window on a hot summer night, I even heard what sounded like clanking chains. Both women shuddered and pulled their veils closer about their heads and shoulders. "'That house has been empty and abandoned for a long time now,' said the first woman." I suppose you'll be looking elsewhere for somewhere to rent. Not at all, said Athenodorus, looking up at the wretched shell of the house. I am curious about everything there is in this world, the bad as well as the good. I'm excited to rent this house and find out what's been happening inside it. You're not afraid of it at all? exclaimed the first woman. The human mind is very good at creating evil where there is no evil, said Athenodorus. It's too easy to hear something spoken of in an ambiguous way and think the worst, to imagine that some personal grudge is far worse than it is, or 
to think of the worst lengths an enemy might possibly go to instead of what they are really more likely to do. But life is not worth living and there is no limit to our sorrows if we indulge our fears to the greatest possible extent. I will not be afraid of this house or of whatever it is that walks its empty rooms. For it seems to me it was their own fancies that destroyed the people who tried to rent it before, more than anything in the house itself. Both women hastily spread their hands forward from their hearts to ward off evil, shook their heads and turned back towards their homes, the older murmuring, good luck, as she went past. But Athenodorus went straight to the manager to rent the house. None of the manager's staff would come anywhere near the site, so Athenodorus had to have his own people set up everything he needed. Luckily, his needs were not too great. Inside, the house was as neglected as it had appeared from the outside. It was a good thing that it was sheltered by the rock of the Acropolis, for it seemed like every nook and cranny had its own draught, and everywhere you went there was a chill breeze blowing at you from somewhere. There was very little light, for the thick vines crawling all over the whole shell of the building blocked what sunlight there was, straining to peek in from the outside. The small courtyard, dwarfed by the looming presence of the house's oversized rooms all around it, was so overgrown that you could barely put your feet on the ground. Most of the walls were bare, their surface pockmarked with rough terracotta tones. But here and there, a faded fresco allowed the dark eyes of a nymph the strong arms of a heroic youth or the delicate wings of a bird to peek through towards the newcomers as they tramped through the property with their belongings. Nearly all the furniture and other household items belonging to previous occupants had been taken away or burgled over the years, but in the corner of one of the bedrooms, Athenodorus found a cracked piece of a beautifully painted decorative pot showing the head and torso of Persephone, her arms outflung, her eyes wide, being dragged off to the underworld by Hades in his chariot. As evening fell, Athenodorus had the slaves make up a bed for him in the Androne, the men's drinking room in the front part of the house. Its tiled floor would ensure that anything approaching him, whether human, animal or something else, would be heard well in advance. He had them provide him with writing tablets, a stylus and a lamp so that he could spend the night working. He was determined that he would not be frightened by any spectre of his own fevered mind's imaginings, but would observe only what was real and true. So he sat upright with his back against the wall, the lamp shining brightly next to him, and focused all his attention on his writing, a treatise on zeal and education in the tutoring of boys and young men that he had been trying to finish for some time. He dismissed the slaves to the innermost rooms of the house and they scurried out, checking over their shoulders every few seconds as another creak, groan or nightly noise startled them. But eventually Athenodorus could hear nothing but the crickets chirruping outside and his own breathing. For a while all was peaceful, but as the night deepened and drew towards its darkest hour, another sound penetrated the gloom and the shadows. Initially distant, it sounded like the clanging of iron. Then, as it got louder, it became the sound of iron chains clanking. At first, it seemed to be coming from somewhere a little way off, but still within the house and its grounds. Athenodorus was positioned near the street, and in that direction all was quiet. As he bent his head over his writing, concentrating fiercely, the sounds started to come nearer and nearer. Now it was in the empty storeroom next to the Androne. The sound of rattling chains hitting the floor crept across the room, coming nearer and nearer to the wall the two rooms shared. The sound of chains scraping across the stone floor as they clanged together moved along the wall. Now it was out in the hallway, near the entrance to the house. And now those clanking, rattling chains were being dragged across the hall. Now they clattered into the doorway, and now onto the tiled floor of the Androne itself. Finally, Athenodorus looked up from his writing. By the light of the lamp, he could see, standing between him and the doorway to the hall, 
the image, almost the shadow, of an old man. Figure was emaciated and filthy, his clothes gone to rags, his skin mottled and caked with mud. He had a long, flowing beard that fell in knots and tangles all the way down to his waist, and his tousled hair stood on end, sticking out at all angles from the skin stretched thinly across his knobbly skull. On his hands and his feet were large iron fetters with iron chains attached. The man was staring straight at Athenodorus with bulging eyes, his mouth open but no sound coming out of it. The only sound was the continued clashing of the iron chains as he held out his hands and his feet towards the philosopher and shook his wrists as vigorously as his worn bones would allow. Athenodorus looked the spectre straight in the eye and held its gaze. He remained seated on the bed, the apparition standing in the middle of the floor of the room. Slowly, the old man reached forward with one shackled hand and beckoned the philosopher to come to him. Athenodorus held a hand up and said, Wait a little. Then he bent his head over his writing once more, to continue with a particularly intricate paragraph on the importance of maintaining the interest of young boys in the classroom to facilitate their learning. With his head bent close to his tablet and his eyes down, he could no longer see the old man, who cast no real shadow but rather seemed almost to be made up of shadows himself. But he could still hear him, for the ghoul stood over him as he wrote, rattling the chains dangling from its wrists over his head. Finally, the paragraph finished, Athenodorus looked up and saw the spectre standing and beckoning to him once more. So he picked up the lamp, stood up, and gestured to the phantom to show him the way. The old man led him back through the house, the chains on his legs dragging across the floor and making the most horrendous scraping sound the whole way, but leaving no permanent mark on the stones. Their progress was slow, for the old man seemed to be weighed down by his chains, though when Athenodorus tried once to lean down and pick them up, they passed straight through his hand. After some time spent inching slowly down the hallway, Athenodorus could see shafts of moonlight fighting their way down through the undergrowth to the courtyard. The old man turned into the open court and abruptly vanished before the philosopher's eyes. Athenodorus looked all over the courtyard by both moonlight and lamplight, but could see nothing. He marked the spot where the figure had disappeared with a small pile of leaves and returned quickly to the Androne. He remained awake the rest of the night, working on his treatise on education by the flickering light of the lamp, but saw and heard nothing else out of the ordinary, only the chirruping of the crickets, the slight whoosh of the draughts in the house, and his own laboured breathing. Following morning, there was a great commotion at the old house. At the crack of dawn, a slave was sent running to fetch the owner, the manager and the local magistrates. As the day warmed to be bright, hot and clear, the women of the neighbourhood gathered around the fountain to watch, as first the manager, then the owner and then the magistrate all turned up to the house, going straight into the Androne, where they could be seen speaking with Athenodorus. As the sun climbed higher in the sky, more slaves were sent for, and told to bring picks and shovels. Several flowed into the house, only to emerge looking tired, stressed and shaken a few hours later. Eager inquiries asking them what was going on were met with frightened silence. Inside the house was equally chaotic. The Androne was filled with irritable men. The owner, who spent most of his time pretending the house no longer existed and was not enjoying this reminder that it had not fallen down quite yet, the manager, who was wondering if he should have simply removed the for-rent notice altogether, and the magistrate, who was convinced he had been dragged out on a wild goose chase, and who was being placated with the best wine Athenodorus could get hold of at short notice. Athenodorus himself, despite a total lack of sleep, remained the calm at the centre of the storm. Meanwhile, the youngest and strongest of his own slaves worked with a few borrowed lads from the magistrate, digging up the courtyard at the spot where the ghost had vanished the night before. Athenodorus' patience was rewarded. 
bringing water to the slaves while they worked. He found them just uncovering a long piece of white bone buried beneath the stones and the soil of the court. Encouraging them to proceed carefully, he stayed and watched as slowly they dug around the bones, uncovering more and more as they went. After almost a full day's work, as the sun was once more making its way towards the horizon, they found they had unburied a whole set of human bones, with iron fetters and chains binding the hands and the feet. The chains were twisted around the bones, digging into and corroding them, pinning them down in their place. Whoever they had once belonged to, and whoever had killed him and trapped his bones with iron in this place, it had obviously been long, long ago, for there was nothing else left of the man they had once been. The owner, manager and magistrate came and were duly horrified by what they saw. A small public burial was hastily arranged for the next day. There was no laying out. Everyone felt that the poor man had lain there without proper burial for long enough as it was. Athenodorus attended the procession, and with him the women from the fountain, who chanted the appropriate dirges. Around them stood the slaves who had worked to uncover the bones, no longer afraid of this helpless victim, and in the absence of any known family, the house's owner and manager and their wives offered libations. The bones were buried with all the proper rites and prayers, and Athenodorus had a small vase placed to mark the site. He continued to rent the house for many months before it came time for him to move on, and had it renovated and cleaned out and spruced up in every way, so that light shone in through the windows, the draughts were stopped, and the vines cut back to flow as gracefully and decoratively as those of their neighbours. The ghost was never seen or heard from again. The End Welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories. And happy Halloween. So for Halloween, we have an absolute classic, one of the longest, earliest kind of full ghost stories that we have. So we know of ghost stories from ancient Greece. And a couple of episodes ago, we looked at the fake ghost story in Plautus's Haunted House, which is second century BCE. But in terms of a complete urban legend, uh, this is one of the oldest we have, at least from the Western world. I'm a Roman specialist. So if anyone knows of any even older from the East or anywhere else, then please let me know. This is from uh, Pliny the Younger's Letters. Um, 727. This is the same letter that we actually heard from a few episodes back. Uh, this is the letter where Pliny tells the story of Curtius Rufus and the spirit of Africa. It's basically the ghost letter. He starts out by saying uh, to the, the man he's writing to, Licinius Sura, he says, basically, do you believe in ghosts? And then he tells three stories uh, talking about evidence for ghosts um you know he says here are three stories that suggest to me ghosts might be real basically um so we've heard two of them now um we may or may not hear the third one at some point the third one isn't quite as good to be honest uh this is um definitely the most famous of the three and the there are other variations of this story as well. So variations of the same story can be found in two later Christian texts, uh, Constantius of Leon's Life of St. Germanus and Gregory the Great's Dialogues, and also in a satirical Greek text from the second century, Lucian's Philipsoides. Um, all of those have roughly the same story, um, the haunted house, it's either a philosopher or a bishop who goes to stay there. Basically, if it's Christian, he's a bishop. If it's pagan, he's a philosopher. Um, the ghost who's buried in the courtyard with the iron chains. You know, basically, all of that. Uh, but we're focusing for today on Pliny's version, which is also the best known of the four. Pliny just says this takes place in Athens. I've based the location of the house roughly, but definitely not exactly, 
on the Venezelos mansion, uh, which is the oldest house in Athens. It was actually built in the 16th century and renovated in the 18th century, so it's far, far more recent um, than this would be, um, but it is the oldest surviving house in Athens at the moment. Uh, and I combined that with my own rather dim memories of being taken on a moonlit walk around the Acropolis in 2014 by my colleague Persephone Sextu when we were on a field trip. Uh, which was rather lovely. If you ever get the chance to do a moonlit walk around the Acropolis, definitely do. Uh, so I sort of blended um, that walk and memories of that together with sort of the location uh, of the Venizelos mansion, but not really. So as I mentioned, every version of the story has a different protagonist. It's always either a philosopher or a bishop. Pliny has a Stoic philosopher called Athenodorus. There are at least three known philosophers called Athenodorus, and they're all Stoics. So there's Athenodorus of Soli, who lived in the mid-3rd century BCE. Athenodorus of Canaana, who taught the young Octavian in the 1st century BCE. And Athenodorus Cordilion, keeper of the library at Pergamon. And both of the latter two were born in Tarsus in modern Turkey, which is also where St. Paul was from. So Wikipedia, and therefore the rest of the internet, thinks Pliny means Athenodorus of Canaana, the tutor of Octavian, who became the first emperor Augustus. That's certainly possible. It would make sense if he was uh, Augustus's tutor, that he would be quite well known. But Pliny doesn't actually give any real indication of which one of the three he means. And Yelena Barras has pointed out that only Athenodorus of Soli has a connection to Athens. I've basically been deliberately vague. Um, by referring to where the Roman Agora is now, um, I've implied that it might be Athenodorus of Soli, the earlier philosopher, so that we might be in an earlier time period. But I've also given him a work in progress attributed to Athenodorus of Canaana because we don't know details of any of the works of the other two. So it is deliberately ambiguous. He is deliberately a sort of a blend um, of different people. And I think Pliny does the same. I've also included paraphrases of famous quotations from Seneca the Younger. So the first one in particular is all over the internet, but slightly misquoted, um, which is the phrase about uh, being more frightened of the imagination than reality. It's from Moral Letters to Lucilius 13.4, and I've included a few other paraphrased bits and pieces from the same letter as well. And this is cheating a bit because Seneca lived long after any of the three Athenodoruses, but he did live before Pliny. So Pliny would have known these Seneca quotations, uh, even if the Athenodorus in the story wouldn't. Um, and it's all Stoic philosophy, although I will have to admit that in the letter, when Seneca says this very famous thing about being more afraid of imagination um, than reality, he actually says that isn't part of his Stoic way of speaking. That's just him giving advice. But he was a Stoic philosopher, so close enough. Uh, and incidentally, a stylus is a pointed metal pen-type implement that you use to write in the soft wax on wax tablets. So if you're drafting something before you go to actually have it put on papyrus or whatever, um, you're drafting it on a wax tablet and you're scraping into the wax with the stylus. Um, so that, that's what a stylus is. I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast today to talk about this story, Dr. Tony Keane, who is adjunct associate professor at Notre Dame in London, teaching cinema in the ancient world uh, and also Roman Britain. His most recent publication is an article in the collection Once and Future Antiquities, edited by Brett M. Rogers and Benjamin Eldon Stevens. He's currently working on a book about uh, cinema and television treatments of Roman Britain called Screening Roman Britain. And he specialises in the reception of the ancient world in modern popular culture. So welcome, Tony. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much for coming on. Tony and I have worked together for probably more years than either one of us cares to remember. So we'll it's, skip over it's, that. It's, it's over a decade now, isn't it? <laughs> it's well over a decade. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll skim over that. Um, so... Tony had expressed a particular interest in talking about this story, which I knew I wanted to save for Halloween, so I made him wait for Halloween. Um, so, Tony, what is it that interests you about this story in particular? Uh, well, this particular story is the thing that sort of... Um, I have an affection for it because uh, one year when I was teaching Latin, 
uh, one of the student uh, exercises that they had to do uh, was a slightly simplified and edited version of this story. Um, and so it's just always sort of stuck in my mind because of that and because of because um, of one classic um, student howler um, where uh, the ghost is at one point walking with a slow pace, uh, which mm. is lento gradu in um, in Latin. Uh, but the uh, the student slightly misinterpreted um, lento and thought it came from the uh, the Latin word lens, uh, and so I got this. Um, this translation of this passage where the ghost was walking with a lentil. <laughs> uh, and that's that's always stuck in my mind. And um, and the other thing, um, as as you know, one of the main things I work on is um the reception of classics and ancient history in modern fantastical literature, mm. uh you know, science fiction, fantasy and that sort of stuff. Um, and an understudied area of that, I think, is the fantastic in the big Hollywood epics. Mm. Now we take we tend not to think of things like Ben Hur and Cleopatra as instances of fantastic literature or instances of the fantastic on screen or whatever uh but they kind of are i mean in obviously all the heavily all the biblical stuff is gonna have miracles in it uh and not just the new mm. testament stuff you've got weird stuff going on all through ten commandments up to and including the parting of the red sea um and yeah, you know, the end of Ben Hur. You've got the sudden apocalyptic weather at the death of Jesus, and then the miraculous cure of Miriam and Tirza, Ben Hur's um, mother and sister, who've been suffering from leprosy. Um, but actually, it's not just the biblical movies that do this. You see it in. Um, in other stuff, uh, in, in the 1963 Cleopatra, um, Cleopatra watches the assassination of Julius Caesar through an image that's conjured up in a fire. Yes, I'd forgotten. And of course, unlike the biblical examples, that doesn't come from the ancient texts. Because mm. the biblical, the eclipse and so on, is all in there um, in the New Testament. But... Yes, I always forget Cleopatra looking into the fire. I remember the Carry On Cleo version where it's yes. John Pertwee looking into the fire. And 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 you get you get that stuff. You you also get you know as uh, you get accurate prophecy turns up a lot. I mean you you've mm -hmm. written um, about the Sibyl at the beginning of I Claudius. Who yes, predicts... I always. Um... I always bring up Frasier whenever I talk about accurate prophecy. I think it's a, a narrative trope that prophecies just have to be accurate because every prophecy Daphne makes Daphne makes in Frasier is accurate. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's. But I think that I mean you you say that's that Cleopatra stuff isn't actually in the text, and yet that specific thing isn't in the text. But the idea that these sort of things could happen, that these sort of things go, are sort of not a regular part of life in the ancient Roman world, but a sort of hovering around there on the sidelines, that mm. goes back to the ancient texts and it goes back to things like this particular letter of Pliny's. Which uh, which has several um, several ghost stories in it, of which this is this is the longest. And you've um, you've done one of the other ones um, a few months back, and when you were doing Curtius Rufus. Yeah, so there's three of them, and I've I've done the two good ones. Um, the the third one is I'll do it at some point. <laughs> yes, the, uh, the, the, the 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 the. Uh, 
the demon Friedman the, getting a haircut. Yes, the the, the demon hairdressers of old work. Yeah, yeah. I'll do it at some point, but when I'm getting bored and running out of ideas, probably because <laughs> the other two are far more interesting. <laughs> but yes, absolutely. And this is definitely. I think this is definitely the longest and the best known mm. because Rufus is not as well known as this one um, in terms of ghost stories. This is the one that tends to be quoted. Yeah, I think it's it's quite a it's a nice little self-contained story. Um, I mean, you you can extract it and set it as Latin unseens. Um, I mean, I I suspect I'd probably read this before um, as a school child reading the letters of Pliny. And the same with um, the werewolf that I looked at with his mm. loin a couple of episodes back as well, of course, which uh, appears in the Cambridge Latin course in yeah. modified form. Yeah, so so they're, they're, they're nice stories that sort of say, actually, there is some sort of weird stuff that goes on in the ancient world. It's not just, you know, dull letters about where I sit my freemen or, <laughs> um, or, or whatever. Um, and so I think it does become well known because of that through that reason, and uh, and it's quite easy to divorce it from the from the context of the rest of the letter as well. Yes, it sits very nicely by itself. I mean, um, something I mentioned in the introduction that it, this the framework of this story appears in three other sources. Um, this is the oldest, so it. It is presumably a folk tale that mm. was well known at the time, um, much like the variations on the girl and the guy parked in a car with a serial killer on the loose and all that kind of thing yeah. that you get now. Although it's nice that unlike the werewolf story, Pliny is taking these quite seriously and Pliny is a member of the elite. So it does get rid of the idea that you see in some scholarship that drives me up a wall, that um, you know, ghosts and folklore is something that... Know, the plebs believed in um, which is the impression you get from Petronius from the werewolf story mm. um, but not from here Pliny takes this absolutely seriously um, and 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 the other thing about that is who he's writing to because uh, Licinius Sura is an extremely important person uh, within uh, Trajan's Within the administration of the infiltration, um, they—they're very close friends. Have been friends for a very long time. Nobody's quite sure how they became friends, um, but they both come from Spain. And my suspicion is that um, you know Trajan's about ten years younger than Licinius Sura, and I—I I, I suspect that um, when Trajan arrives in Rome and comes into the Roman Senate, he probably latches on to Licinius Sura as, as a fellow Spaniard, um, mm. although they're from different ends of Spain. Uh, Licinius Sura is from um, Taraco, modern Tarragona, whereas um, Trajan's from Italica, right down in, in the south. Oh, um, yes. I got thrown for a minute because I thought you meant Pliny and I was thinking Pliny was from Spain. No, Trajan no, is from Spain. Sorry, Trajan and Licinius. I, I, I may have spoken wrongly at one point, but never no, mind. No, no, probably me getting confused. Uh, but yeah, uh, but but anyway, the, the effect is that he that Licinius Sura is extremely important. Um, he gets, when he dies, Trajan gives him a public funeral uh, he gets lots of consulships out of Trajan. He's he's one of Trajan's most trusted advisors, um, mm. and I suspect you know, I'm, I'm sure Pliny must have written all sorts of letters to Licinius Sura. But the only two letters that we have in the collection, the two letters that he mm. keeps, are this one, which is about ghosts. Mm. Um, and another one which is about um, a spring on Pliny's estate um, which uh, is irregular in the amount of water it pours out sometimes it's it's going really quite pouring out water quite strongly and sometimes it sort of reduces down to a trickle and Pliny oh. doesn't understand why that should be the case um, 
And what these both do is present this in his sewer as the strange phenomena bloke. <laughs> that, that, that this is yeah. when when Pliny's got some strange phenomena that he doesn't understand, he drops a letter to Licinius Sewer. And um, Pliny must have been almost the strange phenomena bloke himself in some ways, because Suetonius writes to Pliny asking mm. if he should pay attention to dreams. So mm. Pliny must have had a real personal interest in, in weird stuff. <laughs> I, I think... I mean, to, to be honest, I think he inherits a lot of that from his uncle. Yeah. Because uh, his uncle writes natural history. Um, this is Pliny the Elder who dies Pliny in the eruption of Vesuvius, yeah. whom I love. Um, but he, he, he I mean, I, I don't know how much strange phenomena there is in the natural history. But, There's a fair bit. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the sort of thing you can imagine Pliny very much, Pliny the Elder being very much in. Um, interested in and doesn't the younger tell us that Pliny the Elder was encouraged to write a history about of campaigns in Germany because the ghost of Tiberius's son Drusus appears to him (laughs) yep in a dream in a dream Uh, yes. yes he does um and they, they, Pliny the Elder is quite interesting on on weird stuff because he can be quite sceptical but also quite interested. He's almost like Herodotus in that he sort of writes it all down and then mm. sometimes mentions that he's a bit sceptical of it. Um, but yes, absolutely, Pliny the Younger says that um, Drusus Nero came to him in a dream. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I, I, so it's clearly... So w- with all that, I think you've clearly got a picture of the elites of the Roman world are interested in this stuff. It's mm. not just for the commoners. Yes, which I, this is one of my bugbears in my research, is um, constantly banging on about the fact it's not just, you know, ignorant common people who believe it and the elite know better you know that that is absolutely not what's going on there are members of the elite who are very skeptical there are members of the elite who are not as the same would be true of the non-elite as well mm. just people some believe and some don't um, it's uh, i don't think it's class based but uh, anyway i mustn't get carried away by my own um, <laughs> um, <laughs> um but uh, but i think you're right that it's um what we got here is an urban legend. Yes. And yes. we're seeing various different variations on that. I mean, your current work focuses a lot on reception of the ancient world in modern popular culture. Do you think many writers of modern haunted house stories realise just how old some of the tropes they're playing with actually are? Uh... I'm really not sure about this. I think you'd probably have to ask somebody who actually knows a lot more about the modern haunted house story than I do. Um, I mean, I I think there's definitely an awareness that they're dealing with tropes that go back quite a long way. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, everybody's familiar with the fact that, you know, Dickens is writing ghost stories. Well, that was what I was thinking with the clanking chains, especially Mm. Um, before. I don't remember when I first read this letter. It was a few years ago. But before I read it, I had associated that with a Christmas carol. Mm. Um, So I don't know um, kind of I don't know how many clanking chains that you find in between Finney and a Christmas carol um, or how conscious the connection is. I assume Dickens would have read Pliny. I, th- I, I I think it's very likely that he would have read Pliny. Um, uh, I I don't know too much about Dickens' no, education, either. but you know he's a reasonably well-educated person, and I would expect that for anybody doing Latin. And, and yeah, surely Dickens would have been trained in Latin at some point. Presumably, 
and yeah, I I dare say it wasn't much different in the early nineteenth century to how it was when I was learning Latin in the first learning Latin in the late nineteen seventies. You 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 start off with Caesar, and then you move from Caesar to uh, to Pliny, because he's not particularly yeah. difficult Latin, and right. also. Um, He's giving you a picture of everyday life in ancient Rome or yeah. everyday life amongst the elite in ancient Rome. Uh, and I expect, you know, that has an appeal. So I expect it's something that's always going to have, uh, there's likely to be an appeal. So it's, uh, yeah, I, th- I think we can be sort of more confident that, um Dickens has read Pliny than if we were trying to sort of um wonder whether he'd read Villaeus Paterculus. Yes. <laughs> or somebody like that. Yes, and that's true. Nobody reads Villaeus Paterculus, basically. <laughs> I, I have read Villaeus Paterculus, not I I, I, <laughs> I I supervised the master's thesis on Villaeus Paterculus for a bit. Um, so yeah, I confess I haven't read him all the way through, but I've mm. read bits and pieces. Anything if it's got a dream or a ghost in it, yes, you know, I've read that bit basically. Um, so it's a good point about that picture of daily life as well. One of the things I had to fudge in writing the story was the fact that I was sort of setting it in third century BC Athens, but I'm relying on a Roman story, so there's references to magistrates and things like that, which feels really quite Roman. And at the same time, I've given it a traditional Greek andro in the front drinking room for the men and so on. So it ends up set in this sort of never time that isn't quite classical Greece and isn't quite ancient Rome, which I think is probably not a bad shout for a ghost story anyway. Yeah, Um, I mean, I think you're possibly in sort of early versions of this, you know, there's references to it's not magistrates, it's archones or something like that. but I mean, as I mean, it's, this is a story that moves around and changes its format. Uh, I, you know, the um, certainly the uh, the Lucian version and the version in Gregory the Great are are, are not in Athens; they're in Corinth. Yes, yes, it moves around all over the place and it has a different protagonist every time. Um, so Lucian's is the satire, which has a Pythagorean philosopher, mm. um, and which I'm sure I will come back to at some point because Lucian's is quite good fun. And then there's the two later Christian versions where it's a bishop. Um, so it's always a philosopher or a holy man, but how important do you think it is that Athenodorus is a Stoic philosopher in Pliny's version? Well... I mean, Pliny never says he's a Stoic. No, that's true. He just we, says it's Athenodorus. But I think we, we, we need to remind ourselves of that. We, we, we assume it's a Stoic because all the people called Athenodorus that we know of are Stoics. That's and, true. He just says, Pliny just says the philosopher Athenodorus. Yeah. And, and, and of course, Pliny is interested in Stoicism. Um, it, it's, you know, it's his preferred philosophy. Uh, it's preferred philosophy of most of the Roman elite of the uh, late first, early second century. Um, I think it's much more important that it's a philosopher than that it's any particular brand of philosopher. Mm. Um, I, I, we are dealing. I mean, we're dealing with the generic story. Um, it's a story that requires for its resolution um a noble a a forthright and wise man to come in and resolve it somebody who will not be scared off and will understand what the signs mean and what he needs to do Mm. now in you know fifth and sixth century ce that's that's going to be a bishop Yes, and at least one of the Christian versions, it's a demon rather than a ghost, yeah. if I remember right, as well. So there's elements of 
Christian theology creeping in there. Lucian, because he's writing satire, has all sorts of magic elements coming in as well. Yeah, um, but but for the straightforward version. Yeah, but for the, yeah for for the first for the late, for the late first early second century CE, it's gonna be a philosopher. Yeah. And I don't I don't think it necessarily needs to be a stoic philosopher. Um but we can we can read this as a stoic philosopher if if we want. Uh I mean I, I think the question really probably is why Athenodorus? Mm. Um and from Pliny's point of view, my feeling is it's probably Athenodorus because that's the version of the story that Pliny has heard that it's got yeah. I, I, I don't think he put and I disagree with you know um, the article uh, that you you're going to mention oh, yeah, Yelena Barras who suggested I, I, I disagree with her saying that it was Pliny that gave this name I think wow. Pliny selects in order to give a particular picture of himself mm. but I don't think he's a completely unreliable author in that sense I think he doesn't do a lot of deliberately lying to us no um, I think again a, a bit like Herodotus I think he hears things and writes them down and especially in this story where the whole point of the letter is do you believe in ghosts? And he says, here are two things I heard from other people. And one yeah. thing that, um, I mean, it was his freedmen experienced it, but that I know more firsthand. So I think it's safe to say this is, to the best of his memory, this is how he heard it. Yes, I, 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 I think so. Um, so, the, so the question is, how does the name Athenodorus get attached to this uh to this story um and i actually i think it gets attached because athenodorus sounds like a good name for a greek philosopher well i did wonder about that um because as you say Pliny's version is set in athens is it athenodorus just because mm. he's in athens although the stoics do have some very useful ideas about fear i, I, I mean fit it rather well the idea that one the thing that people die of mm. the people who rent it before they die of fear and i feel like part of the point of the story is that there wasn't actually anything to be afraid of um the ghost was just trying to get a proper burial he wasn't intending to harm anybody and their own terror is what has killed them um which does fit rather neatly with the the stoic philosophy mm. in the bits of seneca that i quoted about um, you know, not giving in to imagination um, and not giving in to fear and not being ruled by fear. So it, it certainly fits very neatly with, with first century CE Stoic philosophy. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's... Um, and it depends on how much credit we want to give to whoever attached Athenodorus's name to this. Um, hmm. Whether I mean I I I think the question which Athenodorus is it is absolutely the wrong question to ask because it just doesn't matter. Uh, well, that's why I deliberately blended two of them. In yeah, right I mean I I don't. Yeah, I mean I don't think either of the histor any of the historical philosophers called Athenodorus had this precise experience any more than I think Bishop Germanus did or Bishop Datius did uh, much later. Um, as I said, it might just be, oh, this is a good name for a philosopher. Um, if we give a little bit more credit to whoever's doing it, um, it might be somebody who knows that there are several philosophers called Athenodorus and therefore if you call, say it's Athenodorus, you're not specifically tying it down to any one individual. And, you know, somebody can come and say, oh, it's not Athenodorus of wherever. Uh, I said, ah, yes, that's because you've got the wrong Athenodorus. It's a different Athenodorus. Um, or if 
yeah, if you give them even more credit, it could be we've chosen a stoic deliberately um, because of this idea that um, that the story is all about facing down things that you shouldn't really be afraid of in the first place. Well, this is what I wondered about it. The other thing I wondered was, is it Athenodorus, the tutor of Octavian? Does the story, goodness knows when it was first told, but does this version of the story go back to a period a few decades earlier and is somebody sucking up to Augustus? Um, and is that how Athenodorus gets attached? But uh, Who knows? I... Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I my gut feeling is that if Pliny knew this was the tutor of Augustus, he might have said something. Yes, that's true. He would probably make a point of that. And the story is definitely older than that because um, so Debbie Felton in her book also looks at the Plautus um, play, which I did a couple of episodes back. Um, which is the made-up story. Now, I would say that that is not quite as clearly the exact same story, but it is a reference to a haunted house. Mm. Uh, references to haunted houses do go back even further than this, just not in quite such complete form. Um, so, yeah, I don't... I think the story is definitely older than at least two of the Athenodoruses. <laughs> No, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure of that. I, I think it's, it's one man writing to, uh, to another person about a subject that he clearly thinks. I mean, clearly he thinks Sura will be interested in this stuff, and you know, cl clearly. I mean, one of the strings to Sewer's bow, I think, clearly is he's the strange phenomenon bloke. Mm. Um, but that's not all he is. Yeah. And I think, you know, Pliny, uh, Pliny presents him as that's the only thing he he's interested in, whereas he doesn't sort of... Uh, uh, I mean, Pliny is no doubt writing letters to him all the time. Uh, especially from the moment Trajan becomes emperor. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he's probably sending drafts of the Panegyricus to him and saying, do you, do you think the emperor will like this and stuff like that? Pliny would definitely do that. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's, it's <laughs> I mean, you, you, you kind of have to. Well, I whenever mean, I read Pliny's letters to Trajan, I don't know if you ever came across this uh, book of poetry for kids called Please Mrs Butler. It was a big thing when I was a child in the 80s and it was the first poem was about this child who keeps saying, please, Mrs Butler, this boy Derek Drew keeps copying my work, Mitz, what shall I do? And Mrs Butler gets increasingly exasperated and just says, don't ask me. And I think of that every time <laughs> I read Penny's correspondence with Trajan. There's one where he literally writes to Trajan saying, oh, what should I do, what should I do? And Trajan says... I made you governor of Bithynia, so you mm. could make these decisions, Pliny. <laughs> but it is <laughs> makes me laugh. But, but it, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's 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 easy to do that and sort of present uh, this picture of Pliny as the man who who can't sit the right way on a toilet without a letter from the emperor telling him <laughs> how to do it. Uh, but actually, yeah. it's actually this this is the great conflict in imperial administration mm. uh, when you've got you know what is essentially a military dictator on the mm. throne um, who can be quite erratic I mean with Trajan you've got one who isn't that erratic with Domitian, you had one who's potentially much more erratic, and you know, mm. Nero and Caligula beforehand. Um, yes, in principle, the uh, you get sent out to take over and run, run the imperial, run the province in the name of the emperor, make the decisions that need to be made to make sure that the uh, everything ticks over. But in practice, if you're trying to second guess what the emperor wants you to do, 
Mm. If you get that wrong, yes, the consequences right. can often be catastrophic. And so in any case where you haven't you haven't got clear precedent to go by and you haven't got to act immediately because uh because there isn't time for a letter to get back to you back to rome and then back to you it really does make a lot of sense to make sure that what you're thinking of doing is what the emperor wants you to do and that the emperor's not going to turn around and say oh no that's not what i wanted you to do at all um you know you're going to have to come back uh under ch- in chains yes. uh, and, and i i i remain absolutely and this is something i learned from uh a chapter of richard of richard miles is about 20 years ago now i remain absolutely convinced that if we had any other governor's correspondence it would look very much the same it would be That's full true. of letters full of yeah. letters saying what should i do this I problem suppose, has come up how, yeah. how do i deal with it what do you think is the best and and yeah you can see trajan well trajan's secretariat presumably getting increasingly annoyed with him um but I'm sure they got increasingly annoyed with all the governors. It's easy to forget that Trajan is a bit of a calm between Domitian mm. and people, Nerva, who didn't last very long. And after Trajan, Hadrian isn't as bad as Domitian, but Hadrian can be um, tetchy. Hadrian <laughs> hey, hey, can be very mercurial. And, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, senators really hated him. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, and he did. He, he wants it, everyone to worship his dead boyfriend. And yeah, it's so Trajan is maybe the exception rather than the rule mm. in being actually not particularly touchy about these things. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I think if you're a governor, e- even if you are somebody who has been part of the imperial circle, it's a big risk to take. And maybe especially if you were part of Domitian's imperial circle. And, yeah, well, yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, Tony Keane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank uh, you. Do let us know if you want to come and talk about any more. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, yes, looking forward to, to the new book and to when conferences start happening in person again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Thank you so much to my special guest, Dr. Tony Keane of Notre Dame University in London. So if you're interested in further reading on this topic, uh, as with um, when we looked at Curtius Rufus a few episodes ago, this is from Penguin Classics' The Letters of the Younger Pliny, translated by Betty Radice. The Haunted House story is also reproduced in Daniel Ogden's source book, Magic, Witchcraft and Ghosts in the Greek and Roman Worlds. Uh, colon a source book and a lot of websites have it as well so a number of websites have this letter and then even more of them have just the haunted house bit of it uh, Seneca Epistulae Morales ad Lucilium translated by R.M. Gumer is available at stoictherapy.com and thank you so much to stoictherapy.com for actually providing the source text for this Seneca quote that is paraphrased all over the internet with no reference. Um, it took me quite a lot of creative Googling to track down a reference for this phrase, uh, which just appears everywhere and it just says Seneca. And you look at it and you go, Seneca wrote more than one thing, you know. Um, if you're looking for analysis, Debbie Felton has an extensive analysis of this story in several versions, including Pliny's, in her book Haunted Greece and Rome. She also looks at Plautus's haunted house story, which we looked at a couple of episodes back. Um, that's the, the made-up one um, that we looked at, where the, the slave makes up a haunting to try and keep the master out of the house. Uh, and I referred briefly at one point to Yelena Barras. Uh, this is from her article, Pliny's Epistolary Dreams and the Ghost of Domitian. 
That's available if you have access to JSTOR. It's available on there. It's in Transactions of the American Philological Association, Volume 142, Number 1. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, hopefully that was suitably Halloween-y. Uh, Creepy Classics will return next month, and I promise I will get off Romans at some point. As I say, Romans are actually my area of specialism, so there is a bit of a prejudice towards Roman stories going, uh, but I will uh, do something that isn't Roman again at some point. Creepy Classics is written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison with vocals by Olivia Knops. It is produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. Mm-hmm.